Jerry, I'm going to try and use the microphone, so hopefully it'll be a little bit louder for you. Nehemiah comes in at an interesting point of history. The nations of Israel and Judah for their sins and rebellion against God have been taken away. They have been put out into captivity. They've been dispersed among many, many countries. First, their Israelites were taken by the Assyrian Empire. And then later the Babylonian Empire would conquer the Assyrians and they'd take over the southern kingdom of Judah as well. And that started the 70-year period that had been told that the Lord was going to get His Sabbaths because He had told them to rest the land every seven years. And they hadn't done it once. So He was going to get His time. And so after that 70 years, He impressed upon a certain king of Persia, his name is Cyrus, to send as many of the Jews who want to to go back to their land and rebuild his temple. And not only that, he was going to help pay for it. So about 50,000 out of all that had been captured and gone, only about 50,000 volunteered to go back in this initial wave. And they started building. And all this is recorded in the book of Ezra. The leader of that group was called Zerubbabel. Okay? So you'll hear about Zerubbabel um, as you're reading through this, and this is given history of what's going on. So they go and they start building a little bit, and the people who are there, the Samaritans is what we refer to them as. These are persons from other countries who had been put into Israel to work the land for those kings. Uh, they initially offered to help build because they knew a little bit about God because they had had to learn a little bit um, back when they first got there because God had sent lions among them to destroy them because they had been uh, not acknowledging Him in any way. And so they had one priest come and taught them enough to where the lions stopped, but they continued their idol worship at the same time. So it's kind of this mutt religion where you had some things that looked like serving God and a lot that didn't. And so they were told when they came to say, hey, we'll help you build. They said, no, you don't have any part or business in this. You just need to push on. And so from that point forward, they became enemies of that work. Um, and they wound up petitioning the kings. Now, they couldn't petition the first king, Cyrus. I mean, he's the one who commanded it to happen. But when after his reign, there was another one, Ahasuerus, and they sent him a letter. doesn't show they got any response from him. And then later, there's another king called Artaxerxes, and they sent him another letter complaining, saying, hey, you let these guys rebuild this place. Um, they're going to rebel against you. This used to be a capital of a major you know, nation, and they're known for doing their own thing. You better stop it or you're going to lose some taxes. And that got the king's attention, and he checked out the history books, and yeah, Jerusalem did used to be a big king, and they rebelled against folks who tried to be their overlords, and he thought that was a bad thing, and so they stopped work on the temple. And so that went on for a period of time until another king named Darius came on and the Lord sent <laughs> prophets to go tell the leaders of those Jews to get back to work. But now's the time. They didn't have permission from earthly authorities, but they were told to get back to work, God told them. And so they did. And then those enemies again uh, sent a letter to the king and the king searched the records and saw that Cyrus had commissioned this work. And not only that, that he was going to help pay for it, and uh, he wanted them to finish it and, um, and to pray for him and his sons. And so all that's kind of the backstory of leading up to in the, I think the seventh year of that king's reign is when Ezra, this is the end of the book of Ezra, Ezra comes on the scene. He's a scribe. He takes another wave of folks with him and they're going to go and they have some reforming that goes on. Yeah, they've rebuilt the temple. It's completed. Um, but they're not worshiping and living and doing as they're supposed to. And specifically, a lot of the leaders of the land had fallen back into the habit of marrying um, ladies from other nations. And God had forbidden 
the Israelites from intermingling with the other nations. And the reason for that was that the gods that those ladies were worshiping, um, that you'd be led astray. And you can see that example with Solomon. Solomon was the wisest guy to have lived next to Christ. And yet he got into relationships with a lot of ladies from different lands, and he wound up worshiping their idols. And so that's Ezra's charge. And if it led Solomon, the wisest, to fall, what makes you think you're any better? Okay? So that's all your free recap to get us to where Nehemiah comes in. Fast forward 13 years. That's when we start with Nehemiah. So it was the seventh year when Ezra came and he had his period of reformation. Nehemiah is in the 20th year of that same king, Artaxerxes. So we're going to just start in chapter 1 and we're going to move through this kind of quickly and mostly as a, a storytelling, storytelling and we're going to make a few comments and Lord willing, the Lord bless us turn into a sermon. It's been one of those weeks where I'm not exactly sure what the Lord would have me to speak on. And so we're going to start here and we'll see where it goes. Um, so when preachers say, I need your prayers up here while I'm up here, it's not just an idle thing to fill the moment. Y'all spend a minute and y'all pray for your preacher. Well, I'm not going to give you a little bit of silence. So I'll go ahead. Chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the, sons of Hilkiah, the son of Hilkiah, so that's his daddy, it came to pass in the month Chislu. I've got a table in the back of my Bible that says that's roughly uh, winter, December. December, <laughs> January. Chislu, alright? So it's cold. Um, in the 20th year, and if you get down to chapter 2, verse 1, it'll say in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, so that's probably what the 20th year is referring to there. In the 20th year, I was in Shushan, the palace. Right, so Shushan's one of the major cities in the Persian Empire at this time. Is it its capital? I don't know. Um, seems likely if that's where the king's at. But So he's in the palace. It's in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. And then a guy comes. His name's Hananiah, one of my brethren. Now is this saying he's uh, just a, a Jew, a brother in that case? It could be. It could also be his natural brother. Because later he used that same expression when he's talking about a whole group of Jews and they'd say this guy's name and they'd say my, my brother. Um, so this could be his biological brother. Either way, he came to Shushan. He had come with some men of Judah. They had come from that land. Right? They had the temple rebuilt. And so he's asking, how are things? They asked him concerning those that were escaped which are left in the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, here's the report, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The walls of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof burned with fire. All right, so this is some years after Cyrus had sent the initial wave back. Some years have passed. We don't know exactly how long that is. And this is now another 13 years after Ezra's gone back. And the, imagine the state of this, this city. All right? Basically, you're living in the ruined shell of a city. You've got all these walls that have been broken down, all the houses that have been burned. Yeah, they've rebuilt the temple, but there's really not a whole lot much else there. And at this time, the walls of the city were what secured you from enemies just coming in and killing you in the middle of the night. It's not an unheard of thing. And so you've got basically no protection here um, in the shell of a ruined city. So it's not something that's... It's, things are not going well. Right? Sum it up. Okay? And yeah, when Ezrebel went, there was 50,000 that went with him. But it also gave him the census information where each of those people were from, what city they were from. And do you know where most of them went? Back to their own cities. They went to go build their houses and their farms and their inheritance. Um, and there wasn't many people in Jerusalem. Why are you going to live in Jerusalem when there's you know, really nobody there? There's no protection. There's not farming everything. Right? They actually had to take volunteers. One in ten men. Somebody stay and, and live here in the city. Um, and so things are not looking good. 
So he's at the palace in Shushan, uh, Nehemiah. He's a servant. You know, he's part of the captivity. He was a servant. Now, he was an honored servant. He was high up in the pecking order as far as servants go. If you get to be in the presence of the king, well, you've done a pretty good job. You're faithful um, in what you do and trusted. And so he was the cupbearer. He was the one who handed the cup to the king. It came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Um, it's a good pattern. Good pattern. How often do we get distressed about things and we just get ticked off or frustrated? That's what I did this week. I was ticked off. I was frustrated. I was lashing out. Um, rather than sitting down and weeping and mourning and fasting and praying, praying to the one who can change things, one who can change things in me and externally. There is a real humility in that. Because it's acknowledging who's in charge versus me lashing out and, well, how do I get my way? Right? So he sat down for days, fasted and prayed before the God of heaven, this is what he's praying. He says, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God. It's an interesting combination, right? He is great. He is mighty. And he is also worthy of terror. There is an awe-inspiring power and wrath and judgment. He is, he is terrible. Do not forget that He is both great and terrifying. <laughs> if you forget that, you've got him too small. The great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. He keeps his covenants and his mercy that endures forever for his, for his children. Those are the ones that will love him and observe his commandments. Let thine eye, thy ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now day and night. This is not a one-off prayer. This was going and beseeching the Lord regularly, often, intentionally. Day and night for the, ser- for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my Father's house have sinned. How often do you include that in your prayers? Lord, I acknowledge that I have sinned. I acknowledge that the, the wrath and chastening that you may be bringing upon me is just and justified. Acknowledging those sins, not trying to sweep it under the rug, not trying to find blame for someone else. Right? That's your favorite activity as a sibling, right? Who can I pin it on? <laughs> we do that as adults too. Well, I wouldn't have reacted that way if so-and-so didn't do such-and-such. They may have been wrong to do it, but we're responsible for how we react. We have sinned. We have dealt corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses. So he's going to quote Scripture to him. Moses saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. And God had told them that. If you can transgress, he told them about the captivity before they even become a nation. Okay? He knew it was going to happen. If you transgress, I'll scatter you. But he also went on and said, But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven... <laughs> Yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place where I have chosen to set my name there. So he is recalling to God his promises. Yes, you promised to chasten and you can scatter us as far as you desire, but you've also promised that you will draw us back to the place that you promised, to that, that place where you set your name. Now these are thy servants, thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power, and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. Listen to my prayer. 
in the prayer of those who are praying with me, the other servants of yours who desire to fear your name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. So he had been praying that the Lord would bless him this day um, to have favor in the sight of this king. Now, remember when this guy came to him was in the month of Chislu, right? December. You go to chapter 2, it seems like, oh, it just, just happens, right? And it came in the month Nisan. That's like March or April. Okay? This is when he has his appearance and the king finally notices something's bothering him. Right? Now, whether he had been upset before or whatever, but the Lord opened up the door at the right time and it wasn't the next day. Okay? Several months have passed. He's praying and beseeching and uh, asking the Lord to give him favor before the king and that he would um, remember the promises that he had made and fulfill them. So it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I have not been before time in his presence sad. So for whatever reason, this was the day that he was allowed what was bothering in his heart to be visible on his face. Y'all ever do that? I do. So he, he was seen by the king. The king said, you know, why is thy countenance sad? Seeing thou art not sick. I mean, he knew him well enough to know that you're not physically ill. There is nothing, this is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. I know this, this is, on the scale of miracles, this is probably one of the smaller ones you may consider, but you've got the king of an empire paying enough attention to his servant and discerning that he is having a sorrowful heart. Y'all think that just happened? No, I think it was the Lord. He's observing there's a sorrowful heart. And I was sore afraid. I said unto the king, let the king live forever, which is the polite way to respond to him. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth in waste, and the gates thereof consumed with fire? And the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So for all these months he's been praying, you know, Lord, answer your promises. Lord, uh, hear me. Lord, um, grant me to have mercy in the sight of the king. Now he's been given that opportunity to speak. What are you asking for? So he prayed to the Lord again. Before he opened his mouth, he prayed some more. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it please the king, if thy servant hath found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldst send me unto Judah, unto the cities of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, and the queen also sitting by, For how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me. And so I set him a time. And then he goes beyond that. He says, Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let the letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come unto Judah. So you got safe passage. Right? And then the governors beyond the river. That river is Euphrates. Major geographic marker, and so it's kind of like the wild, wild west out there. If he wanted to have you know, safe passage, um, back when uh, Ezra went, they had been given all this gold and stuff to go and take with them, and he had bragged to the king about how the Lord's going to preserve them. And they got there, to, and he's like, "I was embarrassed, you know, to ask for an armed guard, but this is going to be a long, you know, like four month <coughs> journey where we've got all this wealth and you know, no, no soldiers protecting us." And so they had time of prayer and fasting before they. They left. And so he's um, asked for safe passage. And then, oh yeah, I'd also like a letter written unto the keeper of all your forests so that when I go to rebuild that you can supply it from me out of your um, your forests. Um, not only to build the wall, but also for the gates and of the palace which pertaineth to the house um, and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And so he's going to go and he's going to be the governor. So he's talking about rebuilding the walls. He's talking about rebuilding the palace, um, I guess that was for the high priest, um, and then also the palace of the governor and the walls and the gates for the city. And so there's multiple building projects that he's asking for. 
And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And this was this is major. I mean, this is going and asking for you know, the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars in materials. I mean, this is no small ask. All right? And the Lord arranged it to happen. This you know, heathen king is giving his servant exactly what he needed. So he starts off, then came out of the governors beyond the river, gave him the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with him. So he had he had an armed escort. And then we're introduced to his adversaries, those that are going to be opposed to him. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Amorite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So Sanballat and Tobiah are going to be your two major um, opponents. That they, they don't care about the benefit of the Jews. That they are, They're the big fish around town. You're out in this wild, wild west, away from the other side of the river, far from the center of power. They want to be in charge. They don't want some special deputy spent from, sent all the way from the king to come and inquire about this people. All right? This weak people at this time who don't have much going for them. They like to stay in charge. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I rose in the night and some men with me. Neither told I any man what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon. And I went by night by the gate of the valley even before the dragon well to the dung port and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down. And the gates thereof were consumed with fire. And this destruction, this has been sitting there for like over a hundred years. Right, this ain't fresh destruction. This is back when Jerusalem was burned, when Nebuchadnezzar came and finally wiped it out. They destroyed the temple. They broke down large chunks of the gates. I mean, this is, you know, demo day is fun, right? When you're doing the projects, it's fun to pull coals up. What about picking up all the stuff? Not so fun. And so you've got mounds and piles of rubbish and debris and burned out houses and things that have been sitting there and vines growing over it for you know hundreds of years of waste. But Paris, you ever try to clean up a barn that's been sitting there a while? <laughs> a lot of stuff inside and junk, right? He says he's, he's going around, he's looking at the gates, he says there's places where his, his beast couldn't even pass through. He's riding some kind of animal and it was so messed up that he couldn't even keep going. That's kind of painting your picture for the scene that's there. Then I went up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered the gate of the valley and so returned. So he's doing his uh, nighttime reconnaissance of seeing just what is this situation. And the rulers, those who were there, who were over the, the Jews that were there in town, they knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I told as yet to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then I said unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth in waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. What's it mean by be a reproach? It means, you know, you're that kid that everybody laughs at. Right? Oh, these are, these are the children of God. God loves them. They're, they're the special ones. Look at them. I mean, they don't even have gates up. Anybody can march in there and kill them. They're, they're, they're an embarrassment. That's what it means to be a reproach. So building so we no longer be a reproach. Then I told them of the good hand of my God, of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. So he told them, not only am I here with the king's permission, he's given me all these resources um, to pursue it. Okay? And they said, let us rise and build. So they were excited. And so they strengthened their hand for this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arabian, heard of it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us. And said, what is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? That's what they automatically jump to, is that if you rebuild those walls, then that must be that you're going to rebel against the, the empire. Um, and they'll use that against them later, at least that idea. Then I answered I them and said unto them, 
The God of heaven, He will prosper us. Therefore we, His servants, will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Now, these are ones who wanted to have influence over the whole region and over Jerusalem. And so they're being told to their face, it's none of your business. We're serving God. We're worshiping Him. We're going to follow Him. Um, you stay out of it. So the next chapter is going to give you a play-by-play of who worked on where around the wall. It's going to start in the northeastern corner, and it's going to go around all the different landmarks around this wall and who built what, who are the people, where are they from, what are the nobles, what are their names, who are the key leaders. If it's by somebody's house in particular, they tell you it was, and the people whose houses were by the wall, they were working on the section of the wall right by their house. I mean, they were motivated. Um, it starts with Elisha, who is the high priest there. He rose up with his brethren, the priest, and they builded the sheep gate and sanctified it and set up the doors. And it goes all the way around the city there. And you could spend a good bit of time looking through this chapter and seeing the patterns. I mean, one, just if you've got a map of the walls and the kind of features of it, you can kind of see where it goes around, and that's, that's interesting. But sometimes it's just the little comments that are made that are most telling. So like in verse um, 4, it says, Unto them repaired Manmoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz. Next to them repaired Meshelam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshabels. And next to them repaired Zadok, the son of Benaiah. And next to them, in verse 5, repaired the Tekoites. Right? Tekoites, that's a city. Um, one of our prophets that we looked at recently was from Tekoa, right? Means. Um, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. Right? The work's going to get finished, and it's going to get finished in rapid time. 52 days, they rebuilt these destroyed walls. And we're, we're talking, I don't know how many feet, but somewhere around the line of ten to 15,000 feet of walls that are being repaired and patched up and built up. Um, several miles of it around the city and it's going to get finished, and it's going to get finished fast. But not everybody was working with the same energy and fervor. And these guys, it was recorded. Their nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. Are we all going to bear the same fruit and labor with the same vigor in the kingdom? No. But the Lord sees our effort. And the Lord knows when we're being half-hearted. And He knows when we're really putting our neck into it. And that illustration of, you know, if you've got an animal pulling a mule and you're working really hard and He's really leaning into it, putting your neck into it, is the one who's not really trying. It's just coasting. Right. <coughs> now that group above, group four, you'll actually see those names appear a second time. They built... Two sections of wall. So it goes through that chapter and it it describes who's working where. And they're working hard and and restoring it. In chapter 4 it says, It came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, that we're actually building it. It's one thing just to talk about it, right? And they're laughing and making fun. You're not going to get going. We're actually building it. He grew wroth. He was angry and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. Alright? So he wants to discourage them. So he's going to mock them, make fun of them. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria, and so what do these feeble Jews? So these are their neighbors, and they're armed. They've got an army, and he's basically taunting them in front of his army. What are they doing? What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish which are now burned? Remember, that's your scene. Right? You've got this blackened, burned-out, ruined, vine-covered city. He's saying, are they going to restore that? Are they going to take this and turn it into something good and noble? And the Ammonite, uh, Tobiah, he's real clever. He's going to mock their, their building integrity. He says, well, even if they do build, if a fox goes up, he'll break down their stone wall. Mm-hmm. Now, if we built something, sorry. 
or it just didn't really stay up. You ever had a fork that fell over in a strong wind or something like that? That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying is that even if they do happen to build something, it's going to be so weak that if a little itty bitty fox crawls up it, it's just going to come tumbling down. So he's mocking them. He's trying to discourage them. And then it, there's an interjection here where it's just a prayer. Nehemiah prays. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach upon their own head. Give them for a prey in the land of captivity, and cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out before them. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. Lord, we're doing what you've told us to do. You hear what they're saying. I don't have to respond to it directly. You take care of it. Lord, I'm leaving it to you. You deal with it. Let the vengeance come down upon their head. Let it come from you. Don't cover up their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out. But Lord returned upon them. So we built the wall. And the wall was joined together, even unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. So the walls joined together. So you had originally you had all these big gaps, right? These breaches and holes. Well, it's starting to come together, starting to touch. You know, even the half thereof. Now, is that saying half of it's touching or it's half tall? I don't know. But they're making progress. I mean, you had all this debris and rubble that you've got to deal with, and you're trying to get rebuilt, and you're starting to make progress. So under the half thereof. But why were they able to? Well, the people had a mind to work. There's a lot that can be accomplished when the Lord's people have a mind to work. And there's a lot that can be ignored when the people don't. For the people had a mind to work. So it came to pass, alright, so it's one they just started building, now they're making some progress, and our adversaries are even more upset. When they heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up, and that the breaches began to be stopped, they were very wroth. The first they just mocked. Then they were angry and mocked. Now they are very, very upset. So they're making progress in the Jews. They're doing the right thing. And their adversaries are getting angrier and angrier and angrier. The opposition doesn't get easier just because you're making progress. They were very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and fight against Jerusalem. All right, so you got Samballot, he was a, and Tobiah, and the Arabians, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. All right, so Ammonites, northeast side. The Ashdodites, it's kind of the residual of the Philistines. Um, Ashdod was one of their major cities. And so you got, basically, imagine you surrounded, and you're living in a city like Atlanta after Sherman came through. You ready for that war? Right. And they're all saying, we're all, all going to get together and we're all going to fight him. This is kind of high stakes, right? This is not passive, oh, ho, ho. This is, this is a big deal. All right? They began to be very wroth and conspired to come against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. So they're continuing to put God first, continuing to work, Continuing to pray to him, but also keeping a watch, being alert for the danger. All right? And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burden is decayed, and there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the wall. Here you see the internal discouragement. You've got this adversaries on the outside, they're conspiring, they're all going to team up together to kill you. And now you got those on the inside. It's too much. We're tired. Right? The strength is decayed. We were doing okay. We're tired. It's too much work. There's too much rubbish. There's too much stuff to clear out. We're not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come amongst them in the midst of them and slay them and cause the work to cease. So what was their game plan? Taken by surprise. That, that, was, that was the plan. We're going to slip in and we'll skewer them. Right? They, they won't know we're coming. However, the Lord defeats their plan. Verse 12, It came to pass that when the Jews which dealt by them, that they said unto us ten times, From all the places whence ye shall return unto us, they will be upon you. 
So all the Jews who lived in any of those cities, they came to Jerusalem and they said, they're going to attack and kill you. So they, that secrecy was, was blown. So how do they respond? Therefore I set up in the lower places behind the wall, and on the higher places I set even the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be ye not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible. Great and terrible. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it came to pass that when our enemies heard that it was known among us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we all returned, all of us to the wall, everyone to his work. All right? So they stopped, and they put everybody in position. All right? you got folks up high, you got folks up low, you got your families behind them, so you're ready to fight. Basically, you imagine whatever armies they have there within, they're ready. And their enemies saw that their secrecy game plan had been blown away. The Lord had defeated them. And so what did they do? They didn't attack. And so they went back to work. All right? They went everyone back to the work. And it came to pass from that time forth that he took his servants and he divided them. Half were working, half were standing guard. And even those that are working, they were armed. And so you get the idea of that one's carrying a sword and the other's got a trowel. Now whether he was literally doing it both at one time or if he's just got a girl, I don't know. But the idea is that they were ready, no matter what, that they were alert and on guard. Um, and said, so there's not enough of us. And so you know, the work is big. you got all this miles to cover around the city. You know, if I blow the trumpet, y'all come over here and we're going to fight. If you blow the trumpet, we'll come over there and help you up. So we talked about that in advance of how we're going to handle if we're attacked. And our Lord shall fight for us. That's verse 20. Right? So we're start with, be not afraid of them, remember the Lord. Now there's, there's a whole sermon there. No, I'm not going to preach it. But you just think about that. What are you afraid of today? Who are you afraid of today? What cares and stress and things that are bothering you, bothering me, be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible. He is able to handle any of it. His Son has already obtained the victory for you. And so all these things that are seem so monumental and tremendous hurricane-level storms are really just the little itty-bitty ripples on the pond when you chunk in a pebble right? in comparison to the eternal magnitude of what He's done and who He is. They don't bother Him. And that's who you're serving. Remember the Lord. I need to remember the Lord. Be not afraid of them, the Lord which is great and terrible. All right? So they labored. They labored from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. They're working hard. People had a mind to work. Likewise, I said to the people, let everyone with a servant lodge within the city. He said, don't go back to your home cities. We're all here. Because remember, there's people from all over the nation are in there working together. He said, don't go back to your home cities. Everyone stay here. We'll have mutual protection and safety in numbers. Um, and he said, you know, they didn't even... You know, take off their, their clothes at night to sleep. They, they kept their clothes on. The only time they took them off was when they were actually going to go wash them. Right? That was how diligent it was. It was a very intense battle, an intense period. And in the midst of this, there comes a cry from the people. There's something wrong. There's something distressed. And we discover that in addition to the city being wiped out and sparsely populated, no gates and no walls, and very few houses, there's also not much food. There's been a famine in the land. And so to deal with that, many of the people have had to mortgage their lands, their vineyards, their properties, their houses. They've had to sell them over for a period of time. And then once, because they had to buy corn, they were hungry, right? Like back in the days with Joseph selling to his brothers, they, they're out of food. They needed to buy some. And so they sold it to the rich among them. There are Jews who are among them who, sure, I'll buy it. I'll, you mortgage it, you know. And I'll loan you a little bit of corn or whatever. Well, after that was that, they wanted having to sell their children as, as bond slaves. 
And so, you know, a cry comes up from the people, and, and Nehemiah hears of it, that these people who have needed something to eat, and they had to pay the king's taxes, the tribute, they had got themselves uh, into this terrible situation where they've had to sell everything they've got, and their rich brothers and sisters, of, of the Jews, had bought it, and now they're buying their children too. And Nehemiah was angry, very angry. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. And I consulted with myself, and then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, Ye exact usury, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. Alright, so all these leaders are taking advantage and breaching the law of God, which said that you are not to charge interest on loans to other Jews. That was what he said. And here they are making a profit off of the hardship of their brothers um, and to where they're buying their own, you know, brother's children in as bond slaves. And he, he, he consults with himself and he's, he rebukes them. He has a whole assembly come against him um, where he's telling them what for, really. And I said unto them, We, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren the Jews which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren? This is interesting. There were those that were sent free by the King Cyrus right back in the day. Well, here's some that said that we've tried to redeem our brethren. So you imagine someone who's a bond slave over here. How do you get him out? You pay the cost to it. He says, we've tried to pay the cost as we were able to to release our brothers from bondage. And now you want to take them into bondage again. Um, and so he you know, orders them. Um, and he says that what they're doing is not good. It's not good that you do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? So he tells them to restore it. What you've taken, the lands, everything, restore it. And even unto the money that you've taken, give back 1% of it. And so they say, we'll restore all and we'll require nothing. They're not going to charge you three. Um, and he took an oath and he made him promise. And then he swore, so I shook my lap at them, saying, So God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. And so you've got this period where you're there, you've got this period of, of, of building, and yet even that, they're not perfect in how they're going about serving. And there's still these areas where they're like, we want to have it our own way. And he calls them out on it. All right? And so you get a brief summary there at the end of chapter um, 5 of him Nehemiah counting the 12 years that he's going to remain in the land and how he faithfully served as the governor. And he didn't add burdens onto them. Now, he had the right. He could have taken additional taxes to support his household, um, but he chose not to because the people already had so much bondage upon them. Um, and so he wanted the Lord. That's who he stands and falls before. He said, Lord, you know, remember me. See, think of me for good um, as you, you know how I've uh, continued in this work. So in chapter 6, it gets back into the construction phase, and you see how the enemies of uh, this construction and this project are trying to trick and draw him off target. Um, so Sam Ballot and Tobiah um, are going to say, you know, this, at this point, there's no breach left in the wall. It's your construction progress. They build the wall, and there's no breaches left, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. And so you've got the walls solid, but the gates haven't been finished. So there's still a way for an army to march in easily. And there's a bunch of gates. If you go back and look at the list there. And so Sam Ballot, you know, sends a note unto him and says, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought me mischief. So we're in 6 and 2. So he's having to discern when these guys are trying to trick him and pull him off task and deceive him and probably kill him. And so come out here to this remote area. And he says, No. And I sent messengers unto him, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I list it and come down to you? Okay. Y'all ever feel like you're getting on fire and serving the Lord and doing the right thing? Don't you notice that's when 
99% of the distractions come up? And how often do we stop and deal with the distractions? I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down to you. Why should it cease? This is a matter of putting things in perspective and priority and doing diligence to the most important things. Working diligently. And it didn't just happen once. They sent unto me four times after the sword. Four other letters. And I answered them after the same manner. Then Sam Ballot, he changed his tactic. He'd sent a private letter. Then he sends him with an open letter. This is one where it could be read and everyone knew what was in it. Where it is written, It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith, that thou and the Jews think to rebel. For what cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king, according to these words? And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee in Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. He says, I have invented all these lies about you, that you're trying to set up your own kingdom, and you've got prophets, and uh, they're reporting that you're the king. You know, this is terrible. We're going to tell the king on you. You need to come and talk to us. Okay? You know, ever have somebody slander you? <laughs> That's what they're doing. He shuts it down really quickly. He doesn't go out there to straighten them out or to get uh, furious or I'm doing no such thing. Well, actually, that's, that's exactly what it does is, or it sends a letter saying, I'm doing such, no such thing. I sent unto him saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. That's it. That's all he says. It's not true. You're making it up. And leaves it alone. He doesn't allow it to get careened off base. Well, you're impugning my honor and my dignity. And, you know, there's a lot of movies about someone's honor being offended and they have to go and fight and kill somebody. And I, mean, I don't think we've been in any duels lately, but sometimes we have that same response. Because it's not true. And what were they doing? They were trying to make us afraid. Their hands shall be weakened from the work that it not be done. That was what these distractions, that's what these tempters were doing. They were trying to hinder the work. Could those guys really defeat the Lord's people? No, the Lord's on their side. Could the Lord's people allow themselves to be weakened and to pause in the work? Yeah. You think there's a correlation to that between Jesus reigning today? Is anybody going to defeat him? Not a chance. But can your and I efforts to serve Him be hindered and be weakened by our focusing on those things that cause us fear or distractions or lies or whatever else? Those are hindrances. And we need to be mindful but not giving in to chasing all those rabbits. They make us afraid and then he, he, again, he prays. There's an interjection here. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. They're trying to make us weak. They're trying to have us pause the work. Strengthen my hands. Afterwards, I came to the house of Shehemiah, the son of Delaniah, the son of Metahel, <coughs> who was shut up. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us shut the doors of the temple, for they will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night they will come to slay thee. Okay? This is a prophet. He's gone into a prophet who's, who's shut up. I guess he's bedridden or in his home and can't get out. But he's a prophet, and this prophet has been bought off. And he's saying, they're going to come murder you. You need to go into the temple and hide yourself. Now, Nehemiah knows that as the leader, he can't. He can't just go and hide himself. That if they're going to come and fight and kill him, well, okay, but that needs to be, you know... <laughs> He's not special. He shouldn't go and hide himself in the temple just to prevent him. So he, he perceived that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced this prophecy against me for Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. So there's going to be, there can be distractions even within the religious. It's not just outside. And we know there's going to be false teachers and false prophets. Um, and we have to be mindful of it. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so in sin, that they might have the matter for an evil report, that they might reproach me. 
how we respond to these adversities and challenges and temptations to do wrong, that those can have reproach against us and bring shame on the name of our Lord. My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sanballat according to their works, and upon the, the prophetess Nehoiada and the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear. So the wall was finished on the twenty on the in the twentieth and on the fiftieth day of the month in the fifty two fifty and two days. Fifty two days. On the twenty fifth day of the month in fifty two days. They completed this massive construction project. And it wasn't because everyone in the world was excited about it. In fact, in spite of that, but the Lord's servants were minded to work. And their leaders were minded to work for the most part. There were some who didn't put their neck into it. And those that they were leading followed. And they didn't try to hide their skin or care about their name or reputation above anything else other than working on the work. Now, this may seem random, but I'm going to respond to uh, a question. I hope I don't embarrass Brother Parrish by mentioning it, but he, he called and asked me you know, if there's a correlation between this building wall and, and you know, Trump's wall. And uh, I said, I know, I, I, I don't think so. Um, and let me give you a few reasons for that. And, and I say that again not to embarrass Brother Parrish um, I, I know of other people who have mentioned something to that effect the bigger point that I'm going to try and make over the next couple minutes is that one of the distractions that you and I have to be on guard from is things of the world taking Christian elements into it to try to pull you into it to try and say, look, this is Christian, therefore you have to support it. Or we have this over here that looks and sounds like Christianity and therefore you must do blah. These are not the main work. These are distractions. Now, if you want to do a, a critical analysis of building a wall across the whole south of our country versus this wall here, you're talking about a couple miles around one city so that they don't have foreign armies come in and kill them. Is that anywhere comparable to slaying, you know, putting one across the whole border of a country so that people that desire to have freedom and a better life, now I know there's some bad actors coming in. And I'm not making a policy argument for or against it here. I'm looking at a biblical analysis of can you make this claim about this political thing? And the answer is you can't. So not only is it not comparable in scope and in purpose, much, much larger, and purpose is not to protect you from foreign invaders, from foreign armies. It's just to keep people from coming into your land. It also ignores all the verses in Old Testament which talks about God saying, you shall not oppress a stranger. You shall not vex a stranger. This is repeated at least a dozen times. Um, go to Exodus 22 real quick. And we're, we're going to go through this exercise of looking at this one particular question and seeing, okay, if you want to look at it critically, what does the Bible say? Well, then you've got to go and see what all does it say, not just this one little piece that looks like it may support what you already want to do. Exodus 22 and 21, I believe. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for thou were strangers in the land of Egypt. Okay, vex means to maltreat. Oppress means to thrust thyself against. And a stranger means a foreigner or a guest. There was no time where Israel was commanded to build a wall around the whole country of Israel. And in fact... Strangers and foreigners were allowed to freely permeate. And if they came in, you were to not treat them harshly or unkindly. Um, you can see that's repeated over in Zechariah chapter 7. Verse 
Zachariah. <laughs> Zechariah chapter 7 verse 9 says, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in his heart. But, so that's what God had said, you know, the prophet is saying, here's what you've done. But they refused to hearken and pulled away their shoulders, stopped their ears that they would not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord their host had sent in the spirit of the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath upon the Lord of the host. Part of what they were sent into captivity for was for ignoring the law and this, of showing mercy to the stranger, to not vex them. Um, let's go to Jesus' words. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, 34, partition of separating sheep and goats. He said to the sheep on his right hand, then said the king unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That sounds really good, right? Yeah, we're looking forward to that. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 2. We'll start verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Verse 2. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's a reference to why. These strangers, these foreigners, came into a wicked, wicked city and the righteous man there entertained them. Entertain means to show hospitality. And so, the big point here is that there will be groups and organizations and people who claim to take the mantle of Christianity and they'll take a little sliver of it and they'll slap it on whatever it is they want to do, and they'll try to get you to come along. Now, am I advocating that we should have no checkpoints allowed on border or anything? I'm not advocating that. It's not my job to advocate that. Um, I understand that. But the point being is resist the urge for somebody to just pull the wool out over your eyes and say, hey, you're a Christian. You have to do this. See, this supports Christianity when really if you look at it closely it misses the big point. You shall love mercy and justice and love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your brethren. Is that what it sounds like if you're trying to keep the poor and the needy and the foreigners from even coming into your country at all? Or hating them because they don't talk the way you do or look the way you do? This is how we have to critically look at the situations that are going on us right now and see what does Scripture actually teach? Not just one little snippet taken out of, of context. Now, part of my job is to be a watchman on a wall. And this may not be something that you're struggling with, and I hope it, it isn't for any of you. But here's a danger that's coming here and now. And it's going to grow. It's going to get worse over the next two years. And it's a, a concept that's been referred to as Christian nationalism. Okay, This is a political group. This is a political movement that is trying to co-opt the ideas of Christianity and build it into their, their movement. Basically, their expression is that we need to take back our country. All right, Our country, if you want to have a Christian country has to have a majority of Christians living here. And let me tell you some news. We don't. The, the majority of the population in this country are not true followers of Christ. Okay. Here's some statistics. Take them or leave them for whatever they're worth. Back in 2007, 
78 of the people in the nation identified as Christian. And we use that term identify because that's real loose. Fast forward from 2007 to now, it's down to 63%. Identify as Christian. 30% say nothing. 6% all other religions. And again, those groups that will have you saying, it's all those other religions' fault. 30% nothing, and then 63% of Christian. Now, of those, only 30% attend service once a month. Okay? And I've got other statistics, I don't really care about them at this point, but you get the idea that the number of true followers of Christ who are disciples of Christ who want to follow Christ in this country is not a majority. And so the idea that by force you can take back this country and make it a Christian country is farcical. It's not true. Nor is it your job to force our government to become a Christian government. Do you know what used to be a Christian government? Rome. Their emperors... First they persecuted Christians, later they became Christians. You know what else? England. You can have some terrible, terrible persecution in the name of a government that's Christian. Even here in the colonies, us Baptists, we were persecuted. Burned, stoned, like here. Because we were not conforming to the dominant strain of what Christianity is. So, we don't want that. Because do the majority of Christians out there believe the truth, the doctrine that we do? No! And so we need to be very careful and, and with our eyes clear of when someone is trying to lead us astray and lead us down a path that takes us away from the main work. Your work is not to make this country a Christian country. Guess what? You're just a stranger here. You're an alien. You're passing through. You've got tents here, but you don't have a deed. This is not the end. We're going to a better country. Amen. Amen. You look at Sodom. Sodom was a powerful, rich, wealthy city. They were full of pride, yes. They were full of gross fornication, but they, they had the opportunity because of their wealth to do what they wanted. It was destroyed. You have Egypt. It was a powerful nation. They had wealth. They did what they wanted. It was gross as vile, but it's a type for sin. It follows through to Babylon. It's this type for sin and carnality and Loving the world and the wealth and all the fornication and the indulgences of sin, all that. Y'all, that's what our country sounds like. Not the new heaven and the new earth where we're going, where we look forward. That's what we're looking for, where things are truly perfect and there is no wicked. Our country looks more like Sodom and Egypt and Babylon. Now, are we very blessed to be here? Yes, we are. Is that America blessing us? No, it's not. That's confusing. Who has given our blessings? God is blessing us, even in the midst of a wicked nation, to continue to praise Him? Yes. Now, do I hope that the Lord grants a great revival and that there does become a superabundance of true believers in this nation? That would be great. God can do it. But I'm not depending upon that for me to continue faithfully serving Him now. It's not contingent. I can serve Him faithfully now in the smallest of numbers. And even if things get worse, and they probably will. And, in, and before the next presidential election, I'm worried that things are going to get very worse. And that people using these titles are going to start pushing for violently achieving their ends when you don't have the numbers to do it to a ballot. 
But regardless of how it is, you still serve the victorious Savior. You're still a servant of the King who is alive, as we are saying this morning, and He reigns. He's going to come back and He's going to <laughs> wrap it all up. And so, don't be discouraged. Don't be frightened. Don't be fearful. Remember the Lord. He's great. And He is terrifying. That's who we serve. Put His work first. When Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, He wasn't just suggesting it. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, you want to be His follower, that's what a disciple means, one who is learning and following after Him in His footsteps, do what He did. Follow Him. Go about doing good and showing mercy.